Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. We are the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools and we're here every week at 12 noon, Saturdays, one of the best times at 3CR, to defend and to promote public education. And when we talk about public education, as we tell you every week, we are talking about a very specific kind of education. It is education that is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is publicly accessible. It is open, open to all children, open to all teachers, open to all cleaners and principals and anybody else who may work in a public school. And it should be owned and controlled publicly. Because it is the only one that is publicly accountable, allegedly through a responsible minister, representative minister in a democratically elected parliament, it should be the only one that is publicly funded. And there shouldn't be any question about there being public schools that are great schools because our governments are responsible for the provision of the best public education system that this country can afford. We know these things have got to be fought for, especially in these days, these latter days of a strange ideology taking over our governments and uh, our media even, uh, the belief in some kind of privatisation of everything. Uh, As we all know, our governments have a revenue problem because they have sold off the farm, so the revenue's not coming in from so many of our public operations. Now, we have a website. A press release is on our website, and our website is www.adogs.info. And this week, we have put up a press release, number 644. Now, this press release is not obviously about public education, but it is about one of the cornerstones of public education, which is the separation of religion from the state. And it's not necessarily about Australia either. It's about the United States Supreme Court and the idea of separation of church and state and a particular justice who has just died. But it is really very relevant to the future of public education in the Western world and most particularly in Australia. So it has gone up on our website and you can see it, our press release 644. The United States Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, 
a disaster he was for separation of religion and the state. The recent death of Justice Antonin Scalia of the United States Supreme Court has even reverberated in the Australian media. There have been two very different versions of his legacy by conservative Catholic and liberal experts in jurisprudence in the Australian of February the 19th, 2016. And dogs recommend that you glance over Justice Kirby's uh, statements. But who exactly was this man of influence? Was he a brilliant judge or a clever Jesuit lacking an em- in empathy, or was he both? Dogs agree with the Americans United for Separation of Church and State that whatever his personality, Scalia's legacy is that of a dangerous, radical conservative in matters of church and state. Although with his legal originalism, he called himself an originalist, and this meant that he claimed to be interested in the intention of the original founders of the American Constitution, He, in fact, twisted the original concept of separation of church and state to fit the conservative views of his Catholic forebears. He was Jesuit trained and he turned a hundred years of cases which had erected a wall between religion and the state on their heads. Now, this proved extremely deleterious for those who were fighting for human rights, for the environment, for freedom of and from religion, and above all, a strong public education system. Unfortunately, his influence has also been felt and left on the Australian legal tradition. Scalia was appointed to the bench by President Ronald Reagan in 1986. He was the longest serving justice on the current court and for many years he was perpetually writing dissents when it came to church-state cases. But just one year after joining the High Court, for example, Scalia angrily denounced a ruling which struck down a Louisiana law which required a balanced treatment between evolutionism and creationism in the state's public schools. Back then, Scalia, however, could only find one other justice, William H. Rehnquist, to agree with him. In recent times, sadly, Scalia has had more allies in the court and is often joining the majority opinions and not penning dissents. So um, that business about evolution and creationism in the state's public schools, of course, relates to the difference between scientific inquiry and theology. They are two quite different ways of looking at the world and Scalia was quite happy to mix them up. Now Scalia is gone and the eventual retirement of other judges hopefully will shift the court in a profound way. And the man or the woman sitting in the White House will actually determine the direction of that shift. Because, listeners, although we have three arms of government in Australia and up to a point in the United States, the judiciary is not as separate from the parliament or the elected representatives as one might think. But um, it's a question of who is in power 
when an appointment is made. And that has been our trouble, uh, the dog's trouble, uh, with the High Court of Australia. So uh, the people in America, the Americans United for Separation of Church and State, hope that uh, eventually the Supreme Court will have more liberal-minded people who understand what separation of religion and the state means placed on it. The men, the, if the shift is towards what the founders intended, then secular government and state neutrality on matters of theology, one hopes that the day may come when the United States Highest Court finally acknowledges that the government's current endorsement of generic watered-down religiosity honours neither religion nor the state and, in fact, it consigns religion to the dustbin of history. It is also to be hoped that the Australian High Court will eventually have justices that go back to a proper interpretation of Section 116 of our own Constitution, which is based on the First Amendment of the American Constitution, and that over here in Australia, we will have justices that are prepared to implement proper separation of religion from the state and the consequent abolition of state aid to private religious schools. Now, we've included in our um, press release comments on the death of Justice Scalia by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. And some of these are quite interesting because they are echoed by uh, Michael Kirby in his comments on Scalia. Rob Boston, in his Wall of Separation on the Americans United website, has this to say. Scalia lacked empathy and he fell down when it came to understanding how his rulings affected the lives of others. As Rob Boston sifted through the news in the wake of the Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia's death, there's one word that he kept seeing over and over again, and it was the word brilliant. Everybody in America, and Australia too, were told that even if you disagreed with Scalia's extremely conservative views, you had to stand in awe of his brilliance, his genius, and his searing wit. Now, Rob Boston observed Scalia in action many times at the Supreme Court, over 28 years and he didn't ever doubt that he was a pretty smart guy because Rob Boston took a lot of cases to the Supreme Court on separation of religion and the state. But he also noticed that there are different kinds of intelligence and he suspected that Scalia excelled at some and failed at others. For example, Scalia was the kind of lawyer or legal mind that... Um, possessed technical knowledge, the ability to learn facts, to gather information and synthesise it, and then apply what you've learned to the world around you. And then there's the ability to present a clever and glib argument, and there's the power to project your views with confidence and state what you believe boldly and be able to defend it in the face of a withering counter-argument. And Scalia was very good at all of that but he failed in the area of what we might call social or emotional intelligence. He lacked empathy and he fell down when it came to understanding how his rulings affected 
the lives of others. And it was very interesting that he died in a luxury resort about to go out with a gun and kill a lot of defenceless uh, animals in a hunting spree. But um, he was a big fan of the idea that government should be able to honour our traditions by endorsing religion in a general way. And that concept is found nowhere in either the American or the Australian Constitution. And he didn't seem to understand or to care how various forms of government-sponsored religion actually infringed on the rights of the people who didn't share those views. So as you can imagine, there were a lot of um, fringe groups in America that Scalia had no idea about how they thought, operated or how his judgments affected them. And as for the environment, well, that's a whole other matter. Now, I received a phone call, my usual phone call during the week, from Alan, and he wants me to tell you that those parents out there who don't send their children to public schools don't know what they're missing, that in fact they are missing out on one of the finest educations that they can give their children in our public schools, because whatever else the next generation needs to learn, they need to learn how to live together in a very, very diverse world which is coming closer and closer to them all the time. And they also need to have the skills which the very, very able teachers in our schools will give them. Now, I also have in front of me... um, a nine-page document which has got some very interesting things in it. And I'd like to read you some of these things that a group of people have put together about what they think about um, public education. Here's a very interesting uh, bit. He believes that, um, or these people believe, But in history, when many fully grown adults fail, a child will often come to the rescue. And he remembers, or these people remember, and so do I actually, a very large town in New South Wales where the person who was in charge of a group of non-government schools, in this case Catholic schools, decided that they would show that the community depended on them by closing them. It's known as uh, the Goulburn case. And the, the truth of this case has been known only by a few people. Uh, but these people who wrote this paper knew about it. Now, closing the Catholic schools in Goulburn failed. It was not a success. It actually failed because all of the children were eventually comfortably accommodated in the government or the public system. First of all, there was a principal who was an adherent of that particular faith who was the principal of one of the state schools and he refused to um, enrol the children, as my, if my memory is correct. But eventually... The education department said, no, these children should be enrolled, and they were. Anyway, um, 
what happened was the children were accommodated and the children liked very well to be in the public school and when they were told that their old schools had opened again and they had to go back, one of the little children said, Mum, this new school is much nicer. Please don't send me back to the old one. Wasn't it a shame, dear listeners, that all of those children in St Alpius at Ballarat, that that school was not closed by the bishop and those children were not sent to public schools. So uh, that was one thing that I thought I'd share with you, that uh, these people who have written this paper have shared with me. And uh, this is the other thing that they are very concerned about. And uh, I know that Ray Nilsson was concerned about this. It's called Joint Operations. Um, And any form of joint operation of the government education system with any part of a private education system, these people believe, should be rejected. Because it causes disruption to the lifestyles, the influence on the character formation and the potential erosion of the public education system. In fact, you are in danger of having what Ray Nielsen used to call captured schools. And any attempt to add non-academic cultural material to the, to the public school curriculum, they feel, should be seen as philosophical dynamite. Uh, And I think we have to remember that our public schools must be open to all children and that parents, when they take their children inside the school dates and leave them there, should understand and be quite confident that our public system is open to all with offence to none. So when something is introduced into the curriculum which is offensive, even to a minority in our community, then it should be questioned. So um, that's all for me from now. Let's have a little break from my voice because Robert's got lots and lots of very interesting material for you. So we'll have a little break and we'll have a happy birthday to 3CR. And I have to remind those of you who are subscribers to 3CR that it is subscriber time. And if you are a subscriber, then 3CR needs your money and your love. In July 1976, from an old warehouse in High Street, Armadale, 3CR Community Radio hit the airwaves, heralding 40 years of independent, community-owned and controlled radio. This will be the first station owned and operated by a cooperative of community organisations on a Melbourne-wide basis. This is 3CR. 
as the status quo of old media is challenged, as publications come and go. In a country with the highest concentration of media ownership in the world, 3CR continues to broadcast radical, insightful radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not talking about land rights, we're talking about sovereignty. That's why it's important for us to be at the 10 Embassy. From the protests against the Franklin River Dam to the 1998 waterfront dispute, from the east-west tunnel picket to the Aboriginal 10 Embassy, the history of 3CR is dynamic and passionate and ongoing. I was born here. I will die here. I am not moving. So as we celebrate 40 years in 2016, we ask you, our volunteers, listeners and supporters, to join in in saying... Happy birthday, 3CR. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We're here, the dogs, defending um, government schools, defenders of government schools, D-O-G-S. It's great to have your company here on 3CR and indeed podcast, if that's how you're accessing um, this program. Um, it's lovely to have your company. Today we're going to have a very detailed discussion about exactly what's going on with the money. I mean, it's often said in business and in life and in politics, follow the money. There's been a report released quite recently um, by two academics. Um, those academics are Jennifer Buckingham and Ms. Liu, and they're from the um, Centre for Independent Studies. Um, they're a think tank. It's a tank you go into and you think, and think tanks produce lots of paper, and they produce websites, and they produce documents, and they produce studies. And they've produced a study, and the study is entitled, One School Does Not Fit All. Now, this study is an argument. In fact, it's it's a powerful argument in many ways, but it's definitely an argument that is an argument for the funding of private education in Australia. Now, I think it's a fascinating document because the arguments for private funding in Australia have changed and morphed over the decades and over the years, and I think it's very instructive for those people who want to defend government schools to, as they say, know your enemy. And the way you know your enemy, of course, is to know their arguments. Now, for this um, particular study, um, which was, as I say, called One School Does Not Fit All, they argue that funding of private schools um, is essentially something that we have always done. They say that historically, um, in Australia, that's what's always happened. I'm sure Jean would think very differently, and so indeed would most people who knew anything about history. So their first argument, that's the way it always was, so that's the way it is. And they say that the education system today is the consequence of a historically high amount of non-government involvement in education. And they go back into their histories all the way back to 1994, where they say 71% of students were enrolled in government schools, but by 2014 this had declined to 65%. That was only after billions and billions and billions of dollars of public money had been poured into them. I think it's extraordinary that it's not more. Oh, I think it is indeed. Um, They also state as part of this study that the Catholic and the independent school sector grew both in number and proportion over the same period, particularly, they say, in the independent sector, which almost doubled in size from 1994 to 2014. (laughs) I I think that's true. I mean, I I think as a statement of fact, that, that is unarguable. 
Um, why this is the case and whether it is a good thing, I think, is contentious. It doubled in size, duplicating state facilities. Indeed. Which is, when you duplicate facilities, that is not economic. That is just very expensive and ridiculous. Yes, they also state, because often private schools talk about values, that the number of special schools in the non-government school sector has also doubled in the last decade. Um, that's from 2004 to 2014. Um, yes, that is numerically true, but the most extraordinary thing is they fail to mention what an incredibly low base they came off. I mean, if you double 20, you get 40. If you double 400, you get 800. And so they fail to say, in fact, while stating this is a fact, because it is, but, you know, there's lies, damn lies in the statistics, they fail to say that in 2004 there was an incredibly low base to start with. So the values argument of, of private education doing nice things uh, for children in special schools, I think, um, needs some analysis. And in fact, we will be giving you that analysis uh, later in the program. Um, they also state that the vast majority of schools in the non-government sector, that is 96%, um, have a religious affiliation. And I think that is pretty much a statement of fact too. I think that is inarguable. The question is, of course, is that a good thing for the education of our nation? And is that constitutional under Section 116 of our Constitution? Constitution, yes. Government funding for, for specific religious purposes or even religious purposes of any sort. I won't get into the constitutional argument, Jean, with you about, <laughs> about that particular issue. Um, they also say that the number of non-denominational religious schools now exceeds the number of Anglican schools. However, Anglican schools still enrol a larger number of students. So what they're saying is there's a very large number of independent schools, which are quite small, sort of flowering out there in the suburbs and towns and cities and, 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 and the bush, or apparently, um, of Australia. Um, well, I think with the funding system set up the way it was by Mr John Howard, that is, in fact, an unarguable thing. There are a large number of small, inefficient, independent schools being set up all around Australia, um, basically duplicating the services of the local state schools. And I would argue um, specifically so that pe parents can feel that they can choose their religious, uh, choose their education based upon various religious preferences. Now, also as part of this study, which is called "One School Does Not Fit All," they say that the funding of non-government schools is, ba is based on a combination of need and entitlement. Oh dear. Joe Hockey, Joe Hockey's not around. We can't have entitled things. But funding, they say, for non-government schools is based on need and entitlement. They say all Australian children are entitled to a base level of government support for their education and parents have both the right and responsibility to seek the best possible education for their child, including in a non-government school. Now, they also say the amount of funding is then dependent on the assessment of the needs of those students. Well... Yeah, no, I don't think that's in fact unarguable. I think that is a point of view that leads to all sorts of very significant social and indeed financial problems. Uh, there are a few other findings, but before I go into that, I'd actually refer our dear listeners to a document in response to this report by the Centre of Independent Studies, a right-wing educational think tank, and the response is by a fellow called Chris Bonner, a good friend of the DOCS programme, he often comes on, Bernie Shepherd and Lindsay Connors and Jim McMorrow. Now, these uh, four academic and individuals have read the report in total. Thank you to them for taking that time and trouble and um, 
I'm sure it took a few glasses of wine to, keep, to calm the nerves, because I think a lot of the things in the report that I've read got me very angry. But they state, in response to this study, that the, this document, um, as I say, was written by Jennifer Buckingham and Tricia Jar for the Centre for Independent Studies, and it actually came out just last month in January. And they surmise this book, and I, I think they're right. They, they say that this booklet says two things. Firstly, that to establish Australia's schools represent a healthy diversity and in the process um, challenge the accuracy of stereotypes about non-government schools. And this booklet also attempts to justify the extent to which non-government schools are publicly funded. Now, the second point that, that um, this, this, whole, this whole booklet called The One School Does Not Fit All is attempting to make, that in light of their assertions about non-government schools creating a healthy diversity and to protect the extent of school choice through including um, the whole non-government sector in a sector-blind public funding policy. Now, the critique that these people um, have for this document is actually quite detailed, and some of the points, I think, are really incredibly relevant. Um, they say that in... Well, they say that in common with other advocates for school choice, Australian style, Buckingham and Jar have failed to address several quite fundamental unresolved issues, including, firstly, and I think this is a point that you'd appreciate, Jean, how state governments could relax zoning entirely in the interest of unfettered parental choice and still meet their guarantee to provide a school place for every child. This gets straight to the issue of duplication. How can a state government say, well, everyone gets to choose to send their child everywhere, but we must guarantee a place for a child in a school that is, 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 is within their zone? Those two things just don't financially work. And also, whether, in fact, there should be limits to choice. For choice to work, for all, there must be an excess of places over demand. How much excess can be afforded? And who pays? And how much? Should any obligation of governments to support choice be open-ended? And again, Jean, this gets back to the point you've been making for years, which is about duplication. Something else this pamphlet does not address is what choice structure might they suggest will bring comparable opportunities for all children? And how are they able to structure choice so that advantages aren't compounded in some schools and disadvantages compounded in others? And can Buckingham and Jar provide evidence of school systems and frameworks which have resolved all these issues? Now, Buckingham and Jar, according to Chris Bonner and co., refer to various arguments about school choice, but they would make a better contribution to the debate if they read what critics of their own versions of school choice are saying, rather than attack what they think they are saying. On page 12 of this particular booklet, and if you are interested, I, I do suggest you go to the Centre for Independent Studies and download it. On page 12, um, the reader is told that, and I quote, some opponents argue that choice facilitates socioeconomic and religious stratification and is detrimental to society. Now, what these particular opponents actually argue is that forms of choice available in Australia especially the public subsidisation of private schools that are largely deregulated, does this kind of damage. 
It's not that sending a child to a religious school is a social evil in itself. It's the fact that we subsidize that choice and create subsidizations from your taxes and mines, and then that school is deregulated. They can hire and fire based upon various peculiar tenants that they might have, and that is what causes the problem. Buckingham and Jar do not actually address this point at all. Now, a serious paper, as commented by Chris Bonner and Kay, issued by the Centre for Independent Studies, should be able, at least, to analyse and respond to such observations. It is not sufficient to simply position those who ask such questions as opponents of choice. Um, in Chris Bonner and Co.'s previous and current roles, um, they have worked firsthand to make choices work for all. In fact, um, I think it is Jim McMorrow is working on a board of a not-for-profit organisation redesigning schools in both sectors to provide authentic choice. Now, a more serious criticism of this booklet um, is that the authors, Buckingham and Jard, do not actually go to the data which is now available. Now, the MySchool website has been up for a while. Dogs were a critic of it. In fact, we still are because it's being used for evil as well as for good. Um, but Chris Bonner does state that there's data out there that you can use to actually make reasonable judgments about what's going on in funding and education. But this booklet doesn't necessarily refer to it. Um, basically, and I quote from the booklet, they say, a varied landscape, this is from the booklet, of educational provision, both within and between the three sectors, each of the three school sectors serves students across the geographic demographic and ability spectrum. Wow, I don't actually think that's true, Jane. You know, you know, when I did logic at university, I learned that there was a difference between sophistry and proper, well-based arguments. And I'm afraid that the private school interest has become very, very skilled at sophistry. Yeah, I oh know it's um it's it, it's it, you get um you get schooled in sophistry in your marketing courses and public relations courses. Now this booklet yeah, it's draws got nothing to do with education. Absolutely it's anti education. The booklet draws on the my school data to describe this varied landscape and it certainly demonstrates a range of students served by Australian schools. But its analysis in statistical terms is overwhelmingly about range. And for a piece of research, such, as focus sets, such a focus sets a very low bar. Would anyone credit a study which demonstrates merely that there are a similar range of motor vehicles driven in the roads of New South Wales as driven on the roads of Victoria? Any reader with a modicum of experience in research would certainly be left wondering, so what? Focusing so much attention on range, one school does not fit all. Sorry, one school does not fit all. The booklet sets out to do will provide few, if any, useful insights on the subject. Now, apart from failing to acknowledge the importance of distribution rather than range, um, the booklet fails even within this narrow task that it attempts. Democratic, demographic, I should say, diversity is mentioned. But the booklet is all but ignores the real significance of socioeconomical diversity. Information about this is readily available on the MySchool website for both the ICSIA index and data on quartile distributions of students in sectors 
And I'm often talking about this when I talk about how you describe a school or how do you describe a sector. How many children from that school come from poor families, from rich families, from families in between, either way. These are things that we know. And this booklet does not refer to that data at all when they're talking about the description of a funding system for the nation of Australia. Mm-hmm. Absolutely stunning. They just use the word need uh, and uh, choice. They use words which are feel-good words, mm. but they ignore any demographic or statistical data that is really descriptive. So now, it's all emotive, isn't it? No, well, to be fair, um, Buckingham and, and Jia do briefly refer to Ixia, using it to demonstrate that each sector includes schools with a range of Ixia values, but even the layouts of the booklet makes it difficult for the casual reader to appreciate the differences between the sectors. They've hidden that data. And there isn't any meaningful statistical discussion of those differences. Just try it references, and this, this is how they dealt with it, by referring to two particular schools, both of which were wealthy schools, and, um, and, and reference those two fundings. So that is to say a selective state school whose parents came from an overwhelmingly higher um, uh, wealth stratification class, Ixivadi, whatever you want to call it, and a comparable private school. Now they go on to say the reality between the reality that is the data behind my school reveals a pattern of diversity in Australian schools which is anything but benign. There is a growing disparity, worsened by school choice as it's structured in Australia, and one which does little or nothing to progress overall student achievements. Now the these authors of this paper know about all this data, but they've ignored the story that it tells. And they say, in a sort of very academic, sit-on-the-fence kind of way, others can judge whether this is a sin of omission or a sin of commission. Well, here at the dogs, I'm getting off the fence. I reckon they deliberately ignored that data because it doesn't tell the story that is pro-school choice, that is pro-private schools. We'll be continuing on um, to, to discuss the sort of broader philosophical and, in fact, statistical issues around what's going on in the education funding system in Australia um, later on in the program. But now, let's just have a break and I think we'll have, I don't know, some music. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm the proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR.
Oh, isn't that lovely? Thank you, David Kinsella. Playing some books to Hooter there. That was a lovely little canzona in G for those people with perfect pitch. Anyway, thanks, David. He was playing a wonderful organ there. I'm trying to think what the organ is. Um, oh, it's that lovely one in Paris, isn't it? Yeah, it's St. Louis. Yeah, the, it's the Orbitin organ. Is, have you heard that one, Mum? Jean? Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Beautiful, beautiful. Very good. Right. A good Australian organist, yes. Yes. Oh, thank you very much, David. Right, back to the serious business of what was going on with Jennifer Buckingham trying to defend public education by cherry-picking statistics. Yes. Well, luckily for us, we've got a few people on side. In fact, some lovely people. Chris Bonner, Bernie Shepherd, Lindsay Connors and Jim McMorrow have been through the Centre of Independence analysis of why private schools are good and pulled it to bits. Just before the music, I was telling you that these people have done this report and they haven't actually done any socioeconomic studies or analysis of what's going on with school choice. So they're not, they don't really, they haven't bothered to look at where the poor kids are going, where the rich kids are going, and they're saying having lots of schools and independent schools and Catholic schools and there's lots of diversity and there's a range of kids going all over the place, isn't that wonderful? But Bernie Shepherd did the work. And Bernie Shepherd and Chris Bonner. Um, did a lovely little study last year, and they can tell you quite definitely that the gap between school sectors and ICSIA values are much higher for secondary schools, both generally, that is across the range, and indeed in specific places. They can also tell you that enrolments in lower ICSIA schools, that is the poorer schools, is static or declining and increasing in higher ICSIA schools. They can also tell you that the poorest people or the poorest students in Catholic and independent schools appears to be declining. And they can tell you that the proportion of poorer students in lower ICSIA schools, regardless of sector, is rising. They can tell you that the gap in student achievement between lower and higher sort of wealthy schools is increasing. And they can tell you that Australia's equity gradient, that is our socioeconomic gradient, is steepening, indicating that school-to-school equality is actually declining. None of this data was referred to in Jennifer Buckingham and um, at at all. They they just completely ignored it and said, isn't it wonderful, everyone goes everywhere, let's move on. But you see, diversity means diversity in terms of socioeconomic uh, inequalities. That's what diversity is. The dogs back in 1960 said that if you give money to private schools, then you are going to have greater inequalities in the social sphere. And it's just common sense. It it just is common sense and it's logical, isn't it? Well, let us point out that there is ample evidence... The government funding policies, as of today, as of the last 15 years, based away on Australia does this whole parental choice thing, have, have in fact led to now stratification of schools, inequalities in the school systems, and, we, and these in turn have infected its efficiency, its effectiveness and indeed its efficacy. And the, the interesting thing about this is that it was given in the first place because a bloke called Trevor Roper and there were Labor Party people were concerned about Catholic children in Catholic schools that didn't have enough teachers and didn't have allegedly enough money. And this was because the wealthy schools like Riverview did not pass some of their 
quite extensive funds over to the poorer parish schools. And that was the reason, initially, and it was a form of moral blackmail, Mm. that the Australian taxpayers, through the Labor Party and the Liberal Party, I suppose, agreed to give state aid to religious schools in the first place. And it's gone from worse to worse to worse. In those days, too, uh, the uh, private school enrolment share was going down markedly and it went down even after state aid until by 1978, uh, 78% of the children were in government schools. And then Tannock, who has since been uh, rewarded by the Pope, became the head of the Schools Commission. And the big money started. And then Howard continued it. Uh, Well, Hawke did his his share as well, of course. And um, we're now at this stage where we have a dual system which is just unfair. Well, indeed. I mean, there is an argument, and we have said on the Dogs Program, that the way schools are funded in Australia is just plain stupid. Like, it it doesn't make financial sense. Forget the moral, the philosophical, the rhetorical processes. It's uneconomic. It's just uneconomic. It's just stupid. So if you're going to defend it, um, as, Connor, as 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 um, this this interesting rebuttal by um, uh, Chris Bonner and Bernie Shepherd say, then you actually have to make some either misleading statements if you're going to defend it. You have to make some um, omissions, as we've discussed already, or you just have to get things wrong. Now, here's the following statement made in this particular study by Jennifer Buckingham. Um, And she says, and I quote, the proportion of government schools in the government funding bracket of greater than $24,000 per year is 12.2%. And it's more than twice as high as the proportion of independent schools, which is 4.7%, and Catholic schools, which is 2.8%. So the argument there is that all these government schools, 12.2% of them, are in the funding bracket of $24,000 per student per year. And they're implying, in fact, that this is unfair. Now, a casual reader would assume, and this is where I think we need to inform our listeners, a casual reader would assume, despite frequent reports about high-funded non-government schools, it is, in fact, government schools where public funding is most generously allocated. Left unstated in the executive's tummy, in, in the executive summary, is the reality that the government schools enrol the lion's share of high-cost students in high-cost locations, mm-hmm. and the great majority of the high-funded government schools referred to serve precisely these students. So this is what they did. They pulled apart this statement, which said that all these, all these wonderful, um, you know, all these state schools are getting all $24,000 plus per student. That's not fair. All now they in say the areas, in the geographically uh, distanced areas, the, there's no one else there, and they cost a great deal of money. Yes. Well, they do go on to clarify in the Buckingham report. So on page 16 of this booklet, if you want to download it from the Centre of Independent Studies website, many of these schools are very small or remote rural schools or special schools. But some are mainstream or selective schools in the government sector, such as the University of Canberra High School and the Sydney Conservatorium High School. But this clarification does not really help. We don't know how the authors define mainstream schools, 
and references to such as many and some are needlessly vague. They acknowledge that many, inverted commas, schools might need such funding, but they claim that some, inverted commas, mainstream schools, number unspecified, also get this money. The implication presumably being because they are, in their analysis, mainstream schools. And they don't need the money. As for the two schools mentioned, they aren't examples of highly funded selective schools. They are the only highly funded selective schools. The only two in the country. So this is where it gets interesting. And I, as someone who likes numbers, find this actually all rather satisfying and amusing. They say, so let's take a look, a closer look, at the 797 government schools which receive government per capita funding in excess of $24,000. This is something Buckingham didn't do. She didn't dare. But these guys have had a good look at. According to the My School website in 2015, they represent 18.86 of the 6,721 government schools across the country. Now, we can deduct from this 797 315 very small, remote or rural schools. 315, let's take those out of the total, as Buckingham and GS seem to accept that these are not mainstream schools. Now, we are assuming that the schools with fewer than 25 students also fall into this category. These schools, by virtue of their small size, have no economies of scale and are quite expensive on a per-student basis. We also need, as Buckingham and Jar would agree, to to deduct 261 special schools from the balance now of 482. These schools enrol students with diagnosed high needs. State schools. How many of the remaining 221 schools might now be described as mainstream schools? Well, almost half, 107 to be exact, fall into another well-established high-needs category because one-third of enrolments comprise of Indigenous students. In the funding context, we don't believe these schools to be mainstream. In addition, 84 of them are in remote or very remote locations. So this leaves now, of the original total of 797, we're left with 114 schools. How many of what's left are mainstream? In 27 of these 140 schools, half the enrolled students are identified as belonging to the poorest of the poor. There is no ICSIA data for the further 12. 46 of the remaining 114 are still categorised as remote or very remote. 14 are English language schools, are early childhood centres or distance education centres, or schools of the air. At best, we believe that 25 and 35 of the 797 schools could be loosely described as mainstream, but this still might be contestable in the case of a school such as Urana Central School, with its two teachers, Tungabi East Public School, with half of its enrolment with with a a language background other than English, or the Croydon Community School, the Yulebrook College in Western Australia, the Snowton Primary School in South Australia, 
and we would actually be pleased to supply, says uh, Mr Bonner, they'd be pleased to supply Jennifer Buckingham with the names on the list of the 25 schools which get more than $24,000 per year. So I think that is a pretty comprehensive destruction of a very fuzzy figure. But here at the Dogs Program, we like to pick through these things. Well, I, I, I personally do, and I hope the listeners agree. Because when you look at the figures of these right-wing think tanks, when they're trying to jump up and down about how school choice is a wonderful, wonderful thing, um, you tend to find that the figures do not stack up. Now, Chris Bonner, just Chris Bonner and his compatriots conclude by saying that over the years, documents similar to this particular document by, Bunningham, uh, by Buckingham and Joao um, have been issued by the Centre for Independent Studies. The big difference is that now we have a wealth of data about schools to put their claims to the test. Frankly, the document One School fit, Does Not Fit All is found wanting. School advocacy groups and their supporters just cannot get away with documents and claims which have the effect, regardless of intention, of misleading the reader. It's especially concerning that this booklet, issued by an established player in the debate about policy, should all but ignore significant information which can be derived from the same sources that Buckingham and Jaffe have consulted to make their case. Um, they would argue, in the interest of balanced debate, that the Centre for Independent Studies could recommission the same authors to produce an update of this document which addresses the concerns. And I've only told you about a few things. There's been much, much, much more, but we on the radio, so it, gets, it goes on forever. Mm. Now, debates about the future of our schools require considered scholarship and serious attempts to find common ground, and one school does not fit ill, doesn't even get close. And that is, in fact, um, a quote from a document written by Chris Bonner, Bernie Shepherd, Lindsay Connors and Jim McMorrow. Well, thank you very much, Robert. I'm very interested in the way uh, Simon Birmingham is picking on particular schools, namely the Muslim schools and not the Roman Catholic schools, for example. Um, and they've been getting away with uh, highly questionable practices for a long time. But we'll do more about this next week, I believe, because there have been complaints that Joe Hill is being cut off. So I think that we will say bye for now and we hope to see you or to have you uh, next week with us at 12 o'clock midday Saturday for the Dogs Program. Bye for now. Bye for now. And um, I, thought I, saw, I thought I saw Joe last night. <laughs> Says 
killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill. Went on to organize. Went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your hill. It's there you find. Oh, no.